everybody and welcome to Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century. I'm Dr. Marsha Mount Shoup. And I'm Coach John Shoup. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. John and I met in a religion class in Oxford, England. Actually, we were in a pub. Well, yeah, but my point is you like to think deeply. And you love sports. I do. Marsha doesn't just love sports. She's a cross-country coach and in her alma mater's Hall of Fame. We're Team Shoot, and we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On this show, we go beyond sound bites and highlight reels. We're going deep. Let's do this. Welcome to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century. We're here in West Lafayette's public radio studio of WBAA. Today, we're going deep on issues of due process for collegiate athletes. Or some might say a lack of due process. Yes, and some would be right when they said that, which is why we need to have this conversation today. We're very thankful to be joined by Dr. Emmett Gill to help us talk about due process. Dr. Gill's work focuses on social justice and athletics. He's currently an assistant professor at the University of Texas in San Antonio in the Department of Social Work. Dr. Gill has also taught at North Carolina Central University and Rutgers and worked in the athletic department at the University of Maryland and taught and worked in the athletic department at the United States Military Academy Center for Enhanced Performance. Dr. Gill is also the founder and national convener of the Student Athletes Human Rights Project. The project is a 501c4 dedicated to social justice for collegiate athletes. Dr. Gill, thank you so much for joining us. We're so glad to have you with us. Oh, Marsha and John, thank you so much for having me today. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Emmett, let's start with if you could walk us through what due process, a term used to describe civil rights in America's legal system, what does due process have to do with collegiate sports? Well, well John, I think um, due process is a, it's a very important part of collegiate sports. Um, I think with the history of due process, it really started um, with respect to coaches' um, right to a hearing um, when they were accused of violating the NCAA bylaw. And a lot of what we see about due process today emanated from the NCAA's battle with Jerry Tarkanian uh, mm. back when he was with, with Fresno State and then when he was with UNLV. Today, John, it's, it's really relevant to collegiate sports in terms of the way that the NCAA system operates. Um, and in brief, uh, you know, the NCAA does not have a direct relationship with the, with the student-athlete. So oftentimes when there is an NCAA violation, the NCAA will hold the NCAA member institution accountable um, for, for addressing the bylaw violation. And oftentimes uh, that involves whether it be a coach that's involved or, in particular, a student-athlete that's involved. Now, John and Marshall, what we'll see most times is that a coach or an administrator will be afforded due process, which basically means that 
you know, prior to any sanction being handed down, that they have an opportunity to participate in some form of a hearing or an opportunity for them to tell their side of the story. But unfortunately, as we see time and time again, uh, when the NCAA member institution decides to deal with a student-athlete, um, they do not have that same opportunity for the process mm-hmm. uh, before they are removed from competition or removed from competition and removed from school. Mm-hmm. So some people could listen to that and say, well, if a player just does what they're supposed to do, this lack of due process shouldn't be a problem. In your experience um, and our experience together, I know we've had several experiences with this issue. So what's at stake? Why why is this an issue for players that they don't have due process? I'll speak from, from a player's perspective, um, mm-hmm. Marcia and John. And I think, you know, from a player's perspective, um, they are not as diligent maybe about pursuing due process because that oftentimes, you know, they just want to get back on the field. Mm-hmm. They just want to compete. You know, and so oftentimes they feel as if, well, you know, if I go ahead and I sit one or two games, it'll be over with and get back on the field. Mm-hmm. As opposed to if I go through this, what we call due process, these procedures, I'm not sure what might happen. Mm. And so I think there's that fear factor. Mm-hmm. Um, but, Marsha and John, I'll, I'll attach this to the larger landscape of, of society. You know, a lot of these student-athletes are from rural and urban backgrounds. Um, a lot of them don't have experience with due process in our American justice system. Mm-hmm. They've been in situations where they or a family member um, have been involved in, say, the criminal justice system or some type of other system where due process hasn't been afforded to them. So it's not even something that they expect. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a, it's not something that they have learned or been accustomed to being afforded, mm-hmm. you know, in their everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um on the school's behalf, you know, I'm just really perplexed, to be quite honest with you, um, why schools have not pursued due process for student-athletes. Mm. You know, because it would seem to me that athletic administrators and coaches want the whole story to come out. Mm-hmm. And especially in instances where, you know, they don't feel if there was a bylaw violation or there's some plausible rationale to that bylaw violation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm just perplexed as to why when the athlete has done nothing wrong or there's a reasonable explanation as to what happened, why schools won't pursue due process for those student-athletes. Emmett, can you name some pivotal moments in collegiate sports where the lack of due process really had a harmful impact on players? And the other thing that maybe you can hit on is compare that with Maybe the Duke lacrosse scandal where upper wealthy white kids from privileged were lawyered up immediately before the day was done and certainly had a form of due process uh, because they had lawyers present. So talk maybe about a pivotal moment in college sports where the lack of due process happened and maybe comparing it to that situation. Yeah, John, that, that that's a... That's a great way to put things, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about something that happened a while ago, and I'll talk about something that happened recently. The case, one of the cases that sticks in my mind is um, the Rush brothers. Um, Jerron and his brother were major, you know, college players. One played at Michigan, one played at Kansas, 
And I guess this was around the time of 2000 where the NCAA was really focusing on the diploma mills, the high schools. Mm. And so, you know, Eric Lyle from Temple, Jerron Rush from Michigan, Eric Barclay from St. John's were probably suspended during the 2000 season for over 80 games combined. These are basketball players. Basketball players. And it was off and on, and it was off and on. And never really knew who was playing. And Mike Jarvis, you know, was at St. John's at the time, and he really tried to advocate for these kids. Eric Barclay, who was at St. John's, went on national TV, you know, speaking about his depression over mm-hmm. everything that had happened. Jerron Rush actually turned to um, alcohol mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, developed a serious um, substance abuse problem with alcohol. This is a kid who was destined for the pros. And actually, I believe Jerron got drafted, but his career continued to be derailed by this alcoholism um, that some had attributed to his battles with the NCAA. And so that's one example. And I and I think that example is relevant because after that, um, State Representative um, Gregory Meeks from New York actually put forth the Due Process Act of 2000 in collegiate sports. And he never gained any support and never made it to committee. But because of what happened to those four young men, um, you know, he thought that it was important that this was an issue that we bring in front of our United States government. And I guess the other situation, um, John and Marsha, of course, is is what brought us together. Mm-hmm. And that was a situation at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 17 or so players you know, suspended throughout the season. Um, at the beginning of the season, you know, I remember the game. It was Chick-fil-A Bowl, we had Chick-fil-A opener. You know, we were excited about, I believe, playing LSU. That's right. You know, Carolina has a team that, you know, everybody suspects will be, you know, a contender for a national championship. We're preseason and top five. You're right. There, there you go. You know, and, you know, the state of North Carolina is, is very excited that, you know, finally we're a player in football. And this happens to these young men. And, you know, the ramifications for it are are just so broad. Mm -hmm. You know, we could speak about, you know, kids like, you know, Deontay Williams who, you know, suffered, you know, a a pretty significant injury um, after coming back from suspension or when, you know, Marvin Austin and and a couple Mm -hmm. of other players who moved on to the pros also suffered injuries because of their time off Mm -hmm. from athletics. Mm -hmm. You know, but I think the larger point is that, you know, these, these young men didn't have an opportunity to tell their story. Right. And that's the essence of due process. They didn't have an opportunity to tell their story. Mm-hmm. Because now, you know, four or five, six years later, we sort of understand what story they would have told. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that they were there were some things that were outside of their control with regard to their education, um, you know, that they had to deal with. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Marcia and John, this isn't just about lost games. The process isn't just about lost games. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about kids. It's about the fact that lack of due process can drive kids to depression. Mm-hmm. Can drive them to abusing alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, it can society, ruin their can lives. The, it can ruin right? their lives. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and so it, it's just more about lost games um, mm-hmm. when we talk about the lack of due process. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the players, I, I was a coach at North Carolina. 
for five seasons and, and was the offensive coordinator when all of those players were suspended. One of the players was called into the powers that be and in, in, in the NCAA investigation and in the university investigation and was told, if you take a lawyer in with you, you're just going to appear more guilty. And so your best bet is to not have a lawyer, just make sure you tell the truth. And as he said to me, Emmett, well, gosh, I was nervous as all get out. It was a room full of white men wearing suits. And it's not as much that I lied as much as I was just nervous and trying to pin things together. And what a sin uh, that he didn't have any type of representation and that he was told if he did have representation, it would just make him look more guilty. And if you compare that with maybe an athlete uh, from a from a privileged situation who immediately, when something happens, they're lawyered up. Um, can you compare those scenarios, and how can that happen? Yeah, um, well, John, you, you bring up a, a relevant point, and you know, sometimes I think I've said this to Marcia, sometimes I feel like I'm the Forrest Gump of college sports games. <laughs> you, know, uh, uh, you know, I just so happened to have students who knew UNC football players, and so I became involved in that. Um, I'm from Durham, so I was involved. Uh, I'd written about the Duke lacrosse game. Right. So I was also at Rutgers um, when Don Imus happened, and all those situations are relevant. You know, basically, you know, in the peer-reviewed article that I wrote on the Duke lacrosse scandal, um, a case of white privilege, um, a lot of what I wrote about the Duke lacrosse scandal was only written prior to to the Duke lacrosse team lawyer getting their lawyers. Hmm. I mean, once they lawyered up, John, it was a wrap, hmm. you know, because they had representation. They had, you know, someone who they could explain to and talk to about what happened and that person could coach them on how to present things that person could be present that lawyer could be present um when those individuals are speaking to the ncaa or to duke university officials so that those officials or the ncaa couldn't ask them any questions that were inappropriate so it makes a big difference when you have um a lawyer in the room you know and by the way you know the lawyers that the duke lacrosse kids had you know, also dealt with the Little Rascals child sexual abuse scandal in the state of North Carolina, hmm. which ended up in a multi-million dollar settlement. So these guys were not public defenders. Mm-hmm. These were very, very competent, well-established right. lawyers. And so it just and made expensive. a huge difference. And expensive. Oh, a- absolutely yes. expensive. And not only that, John and Marcia, but what those lawyers were able to do in representing these kids, where they were able to basically squash or, you know, um, convince people that all of the misdeeds that had unfolded prior Mm -hmm. to the alleged rape, they didn't even deal with those. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. they didn't even deal with all the behavioral and academic issues that those student athletes had prior to this. Mm -hmm. So those lawyers were benefit all the way around. And so, you know, that's much different from, the UNC situation or the situation that happened at Rutgers. 
Hmm. I mean, Don Imus goes on national television. This is a little bit different, but somewhat relevant. Goes on national television, you know, compares these women to mascots and men, you know. The women's basketball team, right. Yeah, the women's basketball team embarrasses them nationally, you know, and one of the young ladies decides to get a lawyer to sue her, and the school um, convinces her not to do that. Hmm. You know, so, you know, when you have representation, it can make all the difference in the world, not in just in terms of, you know, what questions that an investigator or the university might ask you, but also just your comfort level in terms of sitting in the room with all of these individuals who are going to be firing questions at you. I mean, we all remember that scene from the blind side mm-hmm. when the young mm-hmm. man sitting, Michael Orr, sitting there with the NCA and how the NCA goes about things. I mean, that's real. Yeah. That stuff is real. Yes. And now you've, you've mentioned a few things that you've been up close to Rutgers, UNC, but can you tell us, like really what was the turning point what what really got you involved in this issue in more of an activist spirit what kind of turn made you turn the corner into an activist about this stuff i really think uh, the, the actually the unc situation did marshall mm-hmm. you know i was i knew mike jarvis back in 2000 i knew gregory meeks i worked on issues of due process i took a little time away from it mm-hmm. um to finish my studies but you know, when I had an opportunity to meet some of the young men from UNC who had been suspended, I had an opportunity to meet Devin. I had an opportunity to meet his mom, Sharon Lee. Mm-hmm. I had an opportunity to meet you and John. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's when we started the Student 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 Athletes Human Rights Project. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's when it started. It started because of the UNC situation. Mm-hmm. And when I met the student athletes and I met all these concerned parties who were working on their behalf, and then I walked into the athletic director's office. And I saw how smug he was about this. Mm-hmm. And I talked to some of the faculty members on campus who we, now we find out, you know, were, were complicit in some of these things. And I saw how smug they were and how protective and secretive they were about things. I mean, you know, I can remember speaking to, to Jan Boxel. I said, you know, student athletes should have agents. Well, no, they shouldn't have agents. I said, well, what if their agents were their parents? No, they still shouldn't have them. You mean mm-hmm. you're saying that a parent should not come and 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 sort of represent and work on the behalf of their children Mm. you're telling me they're not qualified to do that but you are Mm. and so it was seeing all these concerned parties and seeing how hurt the student athletes were but at the same time seeing how you know confident almost arrogant some of the athletic administrators and faculty were about what they were doing to these kids i mean you know i was in san diego John and Marsha, where the Student Athletes Human Rights Project held its first symposium. It was during the same time as the NCA convention. We were handing out flyers to uh, NCA member administrators from NCA member institutions. And we said, Yeah, well, we're holding, uh, we're the Student Athletes Human Rights Project. And one of them laughed in our face and said, Student athletes don't have any rights. What are you talking mm. about? Hmm. Wow. So that really lit your fire. <laughs> uh, and I think we were right there with you uh, at the same time. Uh, very a pivotal, very pivotal moment in this movement that we're all a part of. Yeah, let's do a little halftime stretch Let's do a little halftime here, stretch. Okay? A little so, lighthearted interlude. Yeah. So, Emmett, 
Let's start with a nostalgia question. What was your favorite sport to play as a kid? Football. Okay. Hands down, it was football. John, I was a quarterback. Nice. Uh, my first junior high game, I threw for a couple of touchdowns. I ran for 110. You were loving life. And, uh, we could have right used the second you. game, I broke my arm. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I broke my arm because we were getting beat 50 to nothing, and I decided I was going to play on the defensive line. And uh, A quarterback defensive lineman, that's a nice you combo. You took it for the team, man. That is something. <laughs> How about... How about who was your favorite sports figure growing up? Oh, God, Dan Fouts. Dan mm. Fouts. Oh, Man, that's a great a, one right there. Oh, yeah. I was a big, you know, Eric Coriel, Dan yep. Fouts, Charlie Joyner, John Jefferson, Chuck Muncie. No yeah, doubt. Was... Chuck Muncie, great call. Kellen Winslow. Oh, they, they were fantastic. Oh, okay. James Brooks. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. I forgot about Kellen Winslow, who, you know, I, I, I thought, you know, he's just gotten a raw deal in terms of being an AD. He is a he is a student athlete's AD, and, hmm. you know, I hope one day somebody picks him up again because he, he's a great fella. Hmm. He's a good fella. Yeah. So so do you yeah. have, like, we've noticed in, in this life that you can have somebody that you really revered, and then you get to meet him, and you're like, oh, not quite what I expected. <laughs> Do you have a sports figure you respect it today in sports? Um, today, I mean there there are there are a lot. Um, you know, one guy that I really respect is Clark Kellogg. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Clark. You know, in addition to just being an outstanding and well-spoken, um, you know, former athlete. Um, you know, he's he's a guy who who in his role advocates for student athletes. Hmm. And at every opportunity he really does speak out um, you know, for what he believes is right. He's he's really a guy that I that I really truly truly respect. Hmm. That is good um, to hear. That is good to hear. One more. If you could pick up if you could pick a sport that you could be a world class athlete in, what would it be? Right now, to be a marathoner because that's the only sport that I, <laughs> only sport that I engage in. I you're allowed to dream time. big, though. Marathon. You're allowed. You're allowed to dream like what sport you would really love to be able to do that in. Doesn't matter if you could actually do it or not. <laughs> Football. Okay. There you go. Okay. You want to get back to that QB thing you had going from, there for from a the, little bit? From the for what it's I, worth, Bryn Renner. The quarterback at North Carolina, while we live there, just got signed by the Chargers. So he could, oh, maybe he could be the next Dan Fouts. <laughs> see, now to see that would be a good deal, John, because you know I think I'm gonna go ahead and retire from intramural football. I'm about, <laughs> yeah. to, I'm about approaching 48.50 now, so it's time for me to retire. But that is I'm time. Keep that in mind. You know, I still think I can whip that ball around a little bit. But anyway, <laughs> I believe it. That's well, awesome. <laughs> Hey, we're going to go into our first break here, and uh, thank you for listening to Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century, and we're going deep on issues of due process with Dr. Emmett Gill. You can follow us on Twitter at ShoopsGoingDeep or hit our website at ShoopsGoingDeep.com. And remember, you can subscribe to Going Deep on iTunes and SoundCloud. We'll be back.
Welcome back to Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century. We're here with Dr. Emmett Gill, the founder of the Student Athletes Human Rights Project and assistant professor at the University of Texas, San Antonio, where his work focuses on the intersection of social justice and athletics. Now we're set to go even deeper into due process. Emmett, let me ask you, what recourse does a collegiate athlete have when they're faced with a suspension? And who has the college athlete's interest at the forefront? Well, John, I, I think any student athlete has at their disposal the opportunity to speak to an attorney. You know, and that's what I would advise them to do. Um, you know, I do understand that, you know, some coaches and athletic administrators might not might not appreciate or like that, you know, but they do have that right. Um even before speaking with an attorney, speak with your parents. Mm-hmm. You know, get some ideas from your parents. I think that that was a game changer. You know, when Devin Ramsey decided to give his mom Sharon Lee a call and ask her what to do when he was being questioned in the in the UNC case. Devin um, Devin was the fullback at at North Carolina who was really banned for life by the he NCAA. He was banned for life. Yeah, and the only person who you know that that I know of to, to have the NCA reverse that decision. Yes. The only one. Yes. And his you know? mother drove all night and came and sat in the chancellor's office until somebody would talk to her. And, and really, you know, I think that that's so important to point out, Marsh. I mean, at the end of the day, I think what, and I know, you know, John doesn't fall within this, in this realm. This is, these are the other folks, but, you know, some coaches forget that, you know, these are son, these are somebody's son and somebody's daughter, mm-hmm. you know, and that they do have parents and that, you know, that, uh, that there is somebody back home that's looking after them. And I think, you know, I would amend that. I'd say the first person you call are your parents and the second person that you call is a lawyer, mm-hmm. um, you know, because, you know, a parent should have direct access to a coach or athletic director or even a chancellor. Mm-hmm. So let, let's talk about this term student-athlete. It's a very fraught term. It's got a history. Um, you know, it was created by the NCAA to protect itself from workers' compensation uh, liability. And, and you know, you made a conscious choice to, to use it in the name of this um, advocacy group. So... Talk a little bit about what your feelings are about that word, student athlete, and and why you do still use it. Um, well, first of all, I'll say, Marsh, if I could, you know, go back and change it, you know, I would definitely change it to mm-hmm. to the College Athlete Human Rights Project. Okay. Um, and I would do that because, you know, one of the first individuals that um, educated me you know, on the use of the term is Richard Southall. He was, mm-hmm. was formerly at North Carolina and now is at the University of South Carolina. And I do, you know, agree with, with Richard in the sense that, you know, since that term was created uh, to protect the NTA member institutions from paying workers' compensation, that it, it should not be used. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I do think that our when we decide not to use it, then we're not giving credit to those student-athletes who play mm-hmm. that role. Yeah. who play the role of the scholar-athlete, you know, whether it be, you know, the kid down at Florida State, uh, Roll, Myron Roll, who is a Rhodes Scholar, uh, 
mm-hmm. or you know the myriad of athletes from Purdue to UNC to to Rutgers who are academic All Americans. You know, like a like a Marcus Page. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that we're giving them their just due. Um, you know, so if I could go back and change it, I would. I just, you know, I just don't understand, though, why, you know, there has not been a greater legal challenge, you know, to that term, if that's the term that's keeping us from things like workers' compensation or allowing student-athletes to use their name, image, and likeness. I don't understand Mm -hmm. why there hasn't been a more diligent attack on the use of this term. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit later. You know, there are several cases that are out there yeah. um, that are directly and indirectly targeting the use of that term. And and so, you know, I hope those cases are successful. But, you know, I I, I have mixed feelings about it, yeah. you know, um, and, and primarily because I am a faculty member and I do know of a lot of student athletes who, who play that role. And, yes. and, and 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 who excel at both of their roles as a student, as an athlete, um, as a son or a daughter, um, some of them as fathers and mothers, mm-hmm. you know, so they're succeeding in several roles. Um, but I get what Richard and others say about it. And, um, you know, I have to, to appreciate that perspective as well. Yeah, I agree with you. It is a complicated term, but there are lots of athletes who understand themselves that way. And they're working really hard to to fill that role. One of the things that has frustrated me is there's an assumption by many that when these students arrive on campus, they're not capable of doing the work. And it's more than just an assumption. While we were at North Carolina, players just were fit into this path in the Afro-American Studies Department that, as we know now, was just a shadow curriculum. Was well, not fraudulent. the whole department. Not the whole department, but the courses that many of these guys were taking. And so many of these players that were funneled into that were some of the smartest guys I knew and were so capable. Devin, for one, you know, was... Devin wasn't in the African-American Department, but I remember one time Devin Ramsey told me he wanted to take a 400-level economics Economics course, but the tutors or the uh, academic academic advisors advisors wouldn't let him take it because they were afraid he wouldn't do well and his GPA would dip below. And there's all kinds of incentives the coaches have uh, for having GPAs and different things. But there's also the primary incentive is let's keep these guys eligible. So can you talk a little bit, Mm -hmm. Emmett, about players having the access to an education? Just just going through a school and in four or five years coming out with a degree is not the equivalent of having an access to the education that that institution offers if you're being told what classes to take or not to take. Well, see, John, I wanted you to keep talking because I was going to ask you a question. I was going to switch yeah. up there for a minute. Go but ahead. I'll go ahead and answer. I'm going to answer that, but I'm going to ask you the question. Yeah. You know, John and Marcia, you know, I, I really struggle, you know, with this as well because, you know, full disclosure, you know, I was a baseball player at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can say that, you know, I ended up majoring in psychology because, 
that was the courses that a lot of athletes took. Mm-hmm. We understood, you know, those are the instructors who understood our plight. Mm-hmm. Okay, so full disclosure. But on the other hand, I also monitored in English. And the only reason I began to, I'll say, excel sort of in academics was because of my exposure. You know, it wasn't necessarily because I achieved a certain grade or I was in a certain major. I was just exposed to another set of professors. And one of the professors who was a creative writing professor actually came up to me one day and said, you know what, if you just spend a little bit of time at your writing, you can be a very good writer. Hmm. And it just blew me away. Hmm. It just changed my whole attitude towards school. You know, so when I think about what you're speaking of, John, I, I wholeheartedly agree. But when I when I think about access to an entire education, it's not just the class, it's not just a major, but it's the professors, sure. it's the clubs, it's the activities. I mean, one of my good friends from Durham, North Carolina, Rodney Rogers, who played collegiately at Wake Forest, sure. he played professionally in the NBA with a few teams, Denver, the Nets, a few other teams. Wonderful. You know, club. Rodney told me one time, he says, you know, my Angelou came to campus three or four times and I never had an opportunity to see her. Mm. Yeah. You know, and that's a, that's a travesty when you have a, an American icon, you know, like my Angelou to come to your school three or four times and you don't get to see her, but you have to go out and you have to represent the university. Yep. And, that happened and here so, at Purdue. Angela Davis was here and the football team had a meeting during the time that she was here and i thought what a shame (laughs) you know angela davis is on campus and the most concentrated you know space on campus that has the most african-american students are you know kind of systematically locked out of being able to go right right well while we were at north carolina I can't tell you how many times white academic older men told me how lucky the players on our football team, the African, the black players on our football team were to be here. They were just lucky to be here. I was told countless times in son of a gun. I I sure felt lucky to be around these guys. And if anybody took the time to talk to them, they were amazingly bright and I felt like at North Carolina, and I feel like sometimes, a lot of times at big-time sports, these guys are, it's just assumed that they don't want to take rigorous courses. It's mm-hmm. assumed that they can't do the work. They should just be grateful. We'll get them a degree in a couple of years if they do what we tell them to do. But as I said, a college degree does not necessarily equal a college education. education. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. But let me ask you, John, I mean, in your experience from the coaching ranks, I mean, are, are you a serious outlier, you know, or are there other coaches who, you know, sort of feel the same way? We, you know, they mm-hmm. sort of cringe when they hear faculty see that and they sort of wish that their young men and male and female student athletes had greater exposure. Mm-hmm. Is that is that a foreign concept or coaches just not – is readily willing to to speak out or to share like you do. I mean, yeah, I don't think it's totally uncommon. I I think that there's some wonderful, wonderful coaches in this business who do have players' best interests in their heart. I think there are some, 
But when push comes to shove, I think there's more coaches that would take the angle of let's make sure that this guy remains eligible so we can do our job and stuff. And if that means taking lesser courses, if that means doing what we have to do to keep him eligible, let's do that. Uh, but I do think that there are coaches in this business who want players to get a meaningful and useful education. The problem is the system is set up for conflicts of assignment, as John yes. says in in football, um, and that coaches are under so much pressure to win and they <clears throat> know that they can get fired at the drop of a hat that they might, you know, care about their players and the players' education, um, you know, in a kind of moderate or kind of abstract way. But when push comes to shove, if they've got a player who's going to miss practice um, because of a class or be late, um, and that's going to affect the performance of the team and make them less likely to be competitive on Saturday, they want the kid to come to practice. And I think that... I think that is not because the coach doesn't think education is important, but it's because the coach has a conflicted interest of, I got to win some games or I'm going to get fired. Right. I, I agree with that. I think that this is a solvable problem, though. I, I have been a coach and have said to players before, I have said, it's going to be hard for you to earn our starting quarterback's position if you miss practice on Wednesday and Thursday because you're in class. I'll never <clears throat> tell a player you can't take that class. You can, But you make decisions, and there's consequences from your decisions. But you can't right. be the starting quarterback if you miss every Wednesday, Thursday practice. Right. And I right. think players right. understand that, and if you say it, I think that's that's fair. What could be right. done in many, many places are doing this now is they practice at 6 in the morning. If you practice at 6 in the morning, and more and more schools are doing it, especially some of the smaller schools, Emmett, that don't have the breadth of classes to choose from and may not offer classes at different times. They're only offered during one time or one semester. Uh, They solve the problem by practicing at 5.30 or 6 in the morning they're done at 7.30 or 8, and players can make it to their classes. I have never coached on a team that practiced in the morning, but at North Carolina and at Purdue have uh, advocated for that at times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and, and this is great information for me, and I appreciate the exchange because, you know, the one thing that I can say, Marsh and John, is when I took my academics more seriously, I became a better baseball player. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, it wasn't just about managing time, but it was actually through thinking through things. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it made me a better critical thinker, better critical thinker at the plate, a better critical thinker in the field. Um, I think it made me feel better about myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have to walk in the classrooms anymore and think I was less than because I was not only competing on the field, but now I was competing in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I totally respect and hear what John is saying about and, and what you're saying, Marsha, about, yeah, there are a lot of coaches that feel the same way. They want the best for their kids academically, but they have that pressure. You know, sure. I, I totally get that. But 
you know, I think in, in, in many instances, if there's a way to figure this out, then it helps them to achieve that goal of being successful on the field, you know? Yeah. Well, that's where there could be real improvement is why can't we talk about this more and try to come up with some more creative options? And that that's kind of a, a segue to me into this next layer of questions. And, you know, what is the role of race in all this, that, that there is no due process, that we're not putting our energy toward thinking creatively, how to really look square in the face of how this is affecting the quality of education and the lives of of revenue athletes. Let's talk a little bit about how you see race moving through this whole dynamic and affecting it. Well, Marcia, um, I don't know. I, I think, you know, one of the first things that I'd say are, you know, that in particular college athletes of color need to act like they, they deserve due mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. You know, they need to begin to demand due process. I think that all too often, just as John alluded to, you know, these student athletes and their families are made to feel as if they're lucky to be there. Mm. You know, and the reality is, is that, you know, and I can say this, you know, I, 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 I was, well, I wasn't there before Michael Jordan was, but I was on Duke's college campus before Duke basketball really became Duke basketball. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Duke would, in my opinion, their athletic, you know, program wouldn't be near what it is today without the, the, the labor of some of those basketball players. Oh, no doubt. So Duke was, Duke was lucky to have them there. And so, you know, to get back to your question, um, our athletes of color need to begin to de- demand due process. Hmm. And they need to begin to advocate for themselves. Mm-hmm. And and that's the bottom line. You know, um, I think, you know, we often say is, you know, it's not what happens to you, but it's, it's how you react to it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we know that, you know, we know our, our country's history around race. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that, you know, in some of these power five conferences, as far as football goes, um, you know, some black players weren't playing on these teams until the early 70s. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that. So, you know, fast forward, you know, 45, 46 years later, are we, we would expect things to be much different, you know, but they're not. And so, you know, I think that not only do the athletes need to do this, but the parents need to get involved. Mm-hmm. You know, the parents really, you know, they need to quit feeling so lucky and like their jobs are, are, are done, you know, because their kid got a college scholarship. I know that's a lot of work. I know that it requires investment and great sacrifice. God bless them, mm-hmm. you know, but the fight doesn't end once they, they get scholarship and actually the fight should, you know, it, it just restarts, you right. know, because now, now we're talking about, you know, a 200, 300, $400,000 education that's on the line. Mm-hmm. You know, now we're talking about what they earn. This is the real money ball. This is what they spent this time from, you know, three, four, five years old up until 17, 18. This is, this is the time where they should receive all that they deserve. You know, now we have a lot of cases going on in the offseason where, you know, student athletes are granted their transfer, and now universities are limiting where they are, coaches are limiting where they can go play. Mm-hmm. You know, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But what we see, Marsh, is that, you know, and John, what we see is that, you know, some of the white parents are getting involved. 
the mm-hmm. kid at the University of Michigan, Albrecht. You know, his dad says, fine, you know, we'll go through this process. We sort of know what to expect, you know, and we hope to win. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're engaging. The, the, his parents are engaging in this in this fight and, and demanding due process. And we need for the parents of the student-athletes of color to do the same. Mm-hmm. Um, does it play a role in terms of, you know, what administrators do and what the NCAA does? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they know these kids aren't going to fight, mm-hmm. then why are they going to give them something that they're not willing to fight for? Mm-hmm. Now, we both know, we all know that what happened at the University of Missouri is a game changer. Mm-hmm. You know, because after, you know, student athletes at the University of Missouri demanded, you know, that the president step down, not for their own benefit, but for the benefit of another cause, and the president and chancellor actually stepped down, that was a game changer. Mm-hmm. Because now we're wondering if these student athletes know what's going to happen when they figure out that they can advocate for their own rights, for their own name and likeness, for their own due process when they're accused of uh, violate, uh, violating the NCAA bylaw. So, you know, race is relevant in a lot of ways, but I might be a little bit different in the sense that I'm going to put the onus on the kids and their family mm-hmm. and, that, and the fact that they really need to, to stand up for themselves because in Devin's case, when he stood up, Mm-hmm. He won. Things changed, yeah. Earlier this year, the kid at Florida International University stood up, the basketball player, the seven foot six guy, and he won. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we do see when student athletes and their families stand up to the NCAA, NCAA member institutions, you know, that they can be successful in terms of things like due process. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, yeah, you do have a different perspective than we do as white people in this business because I think for for me I really want as a white person to pay attention to the power dynamics that people are oblivious to and so many of the athletic administrators that I've talked to through the years have no clue (laughs) that race is um, affecting the way they're dealing with problems and the way they the way they understand what the problems even are. I guess it's great to have, you know, people in the reform movement with all these different ideas and all these different, um, you know, kind of experiences that inform what we see um, in this, in this situation that really is rife with abusive kinds of power, you know? Um, And and, Marsha, I I wholeheartedly agree with your, I wholeheartedly agree well, what you're saying, and I think part of what I've learned is that, you know, people people sort of evaluate the message based on the messenger. Yes. You know, and so while I wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying, you know, for me, over the years, I tried to take a, a different perspective because, you know, if I'm gonna if I'm going to change anyone, I'd rather change the perspective of the student athlete. I think I got a, a college athlete. I think I got a better chance of changing their perspective mm-hmm. than I do of somebody who's oblivious to the situation. <laughs> I mean, you would yeah. think, you know, right. the folks at Carolina, you know, the, the folks at Carolina, the folks at Duke, you know, I just say to them all the time, just think about it. If basketball and football weren't here, mm-hmm. what would y'all do? Mm-hmm. Well, how much merchandise would you sell? <laughs> you know, yep. how many people would show up in your classrooms 
you know, in the school colors to cheer on what you're doing. You know, and the reality is that a lot of these folks, in particular faculty, Marsha and John, they don't, I just don't get why faculty don't really appreciate what student-athletes bring mm-hmm. and how some of us who, this is what we study, sociologists, psychologists, social workers, this is what they study, but yet they're oblivious to the dynamics of race. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, it's just... It's interesting. It truly it, it, is. It is. Mm-hmm. It, it really is. So, so you are deeply involved in the reform movement, and you and I have worked a lot together on at many different fronts. And there are a lot of layers to this movement, activism, lobbying, you know, the creation of networks and affiliation groups and awareness raising and, you know, scholarship generated on these issues and litigation. And right now there are lots of lawsuits out there. You know, O'Bannon's still kind of open and isn't quite settled. And um, the arguments begin this week on the NCAA and UNC's motions to dismiss um, the landmark case on educational access that Devin Ramsey and Rashonda McCants are a part of. So in all this morass, in all these different, you know, kind of arms of the movement, where do you see some hopeful signs for actual change? Oh, man, that's a great question. <laughs> that's a great question, Marsha. Well, I, I think the, you know, the piece with regard to educational access um, that Devin and, and Ms. McCants are bringing forth, I, I think that has great potential. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of universities are are following and monitoring, you know, that particular case. Um, and I think it has great promise in addition to the to the piece that, that Michael Mack could do has brought. I was hopeful um, for the O'Bannon case and was very disappointed, you know, by the Ninth Circuit's decision to overturn part of the ruling. You know, nonetheless, you know, once I had an opportunity to sit down and really digest, um, you know, the entire case and the piece on appeals, you know, the fact that uh, the finding that the NCAA is acting, you know, against the, the, the antitrust regulations um, is very promising. It's mm-hmm. promising because of the work that Jeffrey Kessler um, has engaged in in terms of uh, the lawsuit that will allow student-athletes to operate in a free market. You mm-hmm. know, so while I wasn't as happy that, you know, the attorneys for O'Bannon got $48 million, you know, and student-athletes still don't get the 5000 you know, that antitrust ruling is very important for the next phase of litigation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you know, Jeffrey Kessler, who's now representing the uh, U.S. women's soccer team around equity mm-hmm. and pay, is a very powerful attorney. And so, you know, that's an important piece. But, Marsha, you and I oftentimes have talked about the perfect storm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got Devin and, and Ms. McCants' piece out there. You've got Michael McAdoo's piece. You've got the concussion lawsuits out there, and you've got O'Bannon. Mm-hmm. But Marsha and John, what I think will be the game changer, and, you know, I'm no economist, and I didn't sleep at a Holiday Inn last night. But what I do believe, <laughs> what I do believe is that this, this the drying up of television money mm-hmm. is going to come into play. Mm-hmm. See, there's this issue that you may or may not be aware of with, with regard to, you know, cable television and the bundling of channels, Hmm. you know, and the reality that a large segment of the population says that, you know, if they could purchase channels on an individual basis, that they would not purchase ESPN. Hmm. 
Mm. Now, ESPN has all this money out that they're paying in naming rights, you know, to carry, you know, bowl games and, and, and other college events. If they can't pay that tab, then the NCAA is not making its money. Mm-hmm. If the NCAA is not making this money, then all of these lawsuits and all of the money that they may pay out and all of the attorney's fees that they're paying out is going to be more difficult for them to operate. Mm-hmm. And then if we have more student-athletes who are bringing you know, legal issues against the NCAA, against member institutions, it's going to make it more difficult for them to defend themselves. So we had a perfect storm going about a year ago. Things have sort of died down. But I think some elements in the atmosphere are, are starting to boil up again. Mm-hmm. And it's really going to collectively be a problem for the NCA to continue to defend themselves. And let us not forget what happened at Missouri. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, and the reality that, you know, student-athletes, like John said, you know, we don't give them as much credit as we should in terms of, you know, their, their uh, cognitive prowessness. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them saw what happened at Missouri, mm-hmm. you know, and if they mm-hmm. decide to act on that with all of these other things going on, you know, we could see a shift in what happens, you know, within days, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. Because that's what happened at Missouri. I think you're right. <laughs> if something like that happened again, stuff changes quick. Yeah. You know? Oh. <laughs> it just changes quick. I mean, there was a million dollars on the line, mm-hmm. you know, because of at least, um, yeah, at least because of their game against BYU. But you mm-hmm. know, let's just let's just dream for a minute and say, you know, all the kids from the Big Ten decide to get together one weekend. Well, now we're talking about millions, mm-hmm. millions of dollars, mm-hmm. you know, and what might happen. Sp- speaking of millions, let's talk basketball. Presently, the NCAA is investigating the University of North Carolina's basketball program for academic fraud. But the NCAA is also a co-defendant with the University of North Carolina in the lawsuit presented by Devin uh, Ramsey and Rashonda McCants on a potentially game-changing class action lawsuit. Therefore, the NCAA, as I see it, has incentive not to find fault in the Carolina program. So where is there actual traction for justice to be served in the reform movement today when a scenario like this can arise? <laughs> wow. That's deep. I really have <laughs> It's screwed up, um, isn't it? I mean, th- I mean think yeah, about I mean, that. Basically. You talk about conflict of assignment. <laughs> yeah. Or what's the yeah. thing? Stuck between a rock and a hard place. If they find North Carolina guilty, then they're going to be guilty as well in the lawsuit uh, against them. Right. Right. So where is, think, their you know, tra- where is there room for justice? Justice. Well, you know, again, I, I, I just throw some things out there and, you know, that's why. You know, I certainly appreciate the, the, the title of the program in, in terms of going deep. So I'll, mm-hmm. I'll try and go deep again. And, you know, I, I actually think um, I actually think, Marcia and John, that if the NCAA decides not to find fault within the within the men's basketball program, um, that they will have to deal with potentially 
a Title IX issue if they find fault in the women's basketball program. Hmm. That's an interesting perspective. You know, because right now the idea is that, you know, they're going to throw Sylvia Hatchell and the women's basketball program under the bus. And, you know, the, the men's basketball will probably, um, you know, exit this whole episode unscathed. Hmm. And, you know, so there's a, there's a little background noise out there that says, you know, if that happens, you know, that the accusations have, that have been brought against, you know, the women's basketball program, while true, may be unfair because they have not done the same with the, sure. with the men's basketball program. You know, given, you know, what, you know, people like Ms. McCann's brother has, has, have talked Sad. about, yeah. you know, uh, you know, some of the realities when we look at the statistics around the paper classes and who are taking the paper classes and the men's basketball performance in terms of, you know, wins and championships during that time, mm-hmm. you know, and right now that's, that's really the only traction that I see outside of, you know, public, public outcry, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we really have to wonder, you know, whether or not that's going to happen. You know, it's, it's, it's just so interesting you know the the power of 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 Carolina basketball. Mm-hmm. It really is. You know it, it 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 really is incredible. And again, I'm you know I'm from North Carolina. My brother-in-law played basketball for Dean Smith. He played you know JV for Roy Williams. You know, so you know have a little bit of understanding of the history and the and the strength of the program. Um, you could see that by the national championship game and all the players being there, the past players. But you know, right or right, right is right and wrong is wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, and I and I think that you know while I have too some problems with you know Wayne Steen's report is is pretty clear. You know, in terms of what was going on, and you know I just I just it's it's really hard for me to believe that with all the attention that the investigation, the academic scandal received during the Final Four and throughout the NCAA tournament that the NCAA could not find fault, Yeah, you know, with the program. You know, I've had an opportunity to, to speak at length with, 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 with John Duncan, who's the director of enforcement. And, you know, from our conversations, I, I, I got the impression that he is a, he's a good man. He's an honest man. I just don't see how they could not find, you know, the program, the men's basketball program at fault. But to answer your question, John, I think the only traction would be is if, you know, some of the folks who are who are experts in Title IX decided to say, you know what, you picked on the women's basketball program and, and you let the men's program get out of this scot-free. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. They also picked on the football program yeah. and let the basketball program get scot-free. But the angle of Title IX is an interesting one. Right. And UNC is already under investigation for Title IX violations because of their treatment of accusations of sexual assault. So they probably don't want to run afoul of the Title IX people anymore. <laughs> no, so, they don't. And that would be, you know, that would be another issue that falls, that could possibly fall under the office, mm-hmm, you know, Civil, civil Rights and the Department of yeah. Education. Mm-hmm. But I'd say, you know, I got a question, and I'm sorry, I keep asking questions, it's but John, let me questions. ask you a question. Yep. Do you think that the football players who, you know, got thrown under the bus, would you think they would take issue with the basketball program going if they were found to be not involved. Yes. (laughs) Yes. 
the 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 players will and have already uh and uh many coaches would as well that was we, going on while we were we, there though yeah, that... we we were the the football program at North Carolina of course so our listeners know Butch Davis got fired as the football coach at North Carolina primarily because he they accused him of dabbling in this academic fraud which was going on 20 years before he ever arrived on the campus it's very clear that, actually they never even accused him of that they just right. said you have to go because we need to start over because this is such a mess and it was a kind of red herring it was a way to avoid what was really going on but they never even said he did it. You know, they never even said he was a part of that. But the interesting thing that I think you're pointing to is that while we were there, there was already tension about the kind of ways people look the other way about stuff that happened with the basketball program from parking tickets to, you know, other stuff. Um, and then the way the football program was not given such leniency about stuff like that wouldn't you say I, I would say you know I'll share a story with you Emmett that I shared with the Weinstein report I shared with Governor Martin when he was doing his investigation and it was redacted out of the Weinstein report coach Davis and I were up and I won't say the player's name but we were up in uh, the Tidewater area recruiting and we had recruited a player from that school that we were visiting, and he wasn't doing very well academically. And so we were in his high school recruiting another player. And this was my first or my second recruiting season, recruiting another player to, to come to UNC. And Coach Davis said to his head football coach, you know, this, this young man's struggling a little bit. What can we do to help him? Uh, because he was a wonderful student in high school, and, and he's just struggling. And I'll never forget, Emmett, his high school football coach looked at Coach Davis and me right in the eye and said, well, he took eight years of Spanish in high school, and you've got him in Swahili where he's flunking right now. Why the heck are you putting him in Swahili class? Wow. That week, Coach Davis and I were in an academic meeting, and I'll never forget this. Coach Davis was upset primarily that the guy had an F, you know. I mean, it, I wonder what would have happened if he was just getting an A in Swahili. We'd have never even known. But he was talking to our academic advisor and said, I just don't understand this. This guy was a wonderful Spanish student in high school. Why the heck do we have him in Swahili? I mean, he's not doing well in it. If he was getting an A in Swahili and wanted to be in Swahili, I'd get it. Why is he here? I'll never forget, Emmett. She sat back and looked right at Coach Davis and said, You don't get it, do you? You don't, you don't get it. And Coach Davis said, well, I get that he's not doing well in Swahili and was going crazy. And at that moment, I realized 
Coach Davis isn't a North Carolina guy. This is there's something deeper there's something going on. Going I didn't on. know what it was. <clears throat> I didn't know where it was going. I can't say that I predicted anything uh, that you know was going to happen in the future. But I told every member that story, and it was not put in the Wayne Stanley report. Basically, okay. Well, thank you, John. That's not what we were really asking you or anything like that. And wow. soon after that, she resigned her position and left the University of North Carolina. So, wow. Wow. So, so we could all regale each other with many, many stories, and we we work. We work hard to, you know, kind of find our way in all this this craziness to enact change. And you and I, Emmett, have worked really hard to build partnerships with a lot of different constituencies in this reform movement, from athletic directors to players to players' parents to elected officials to other reform groups. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about the reform movement and just where are some frustrations for you, and then what are some strategies that you actually think are working? Um, well, another great question, Marsha. I guess the first thing I'll say is, you know, what what I'm excited about, you know, and that's that we are seeing a, a new generation of, of former college athletes who are becoming activists. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the whether it's, you know, Ramogi Huma, who's a former football player at UCLA or Kane Coulter, mm-hmm. you know, who's a former quarterback in the Big Ten. I, I think that that's, that's a positive mm-hmm. um, from everything that's happened. And I'm very, very thankful for those young men and others, um, you know, from Miss McCants to, to Devin Ramsey to, to Michael McAdoo to, to all of these athletes who are beginning to, you know, speak out. And Bob um, DeMars. To my man. Bob DeMars yeah, has made Bob the DeMars. movie. Yes. A- absolutely. You know, so we have all of these folks, uh, all of these former athletes who are coming back and making a contribution. So I think that's very important. Um, I think the, the frustrating part about it is, you know, that we all haven't found a way to work together yet. Yeah. You know, all of us have, you know, everybody has, we, they call them stakeholders. So mm-hmm. everyone has a different um, stake in the game, you know, and I get that, you know, so we've got, you know, different groups out there, um, whether it be the Student Athletes Human Rights Project, whether it's, you know, the Drake Group, whether it's the New Faculty Coalition. And the thing that's frustrating is that we all are working towards similar goals, you know, but we haven't found ways to work together, you know. And I, I feel as if, you know, once we figure out a way to work together, that whatever we decide is a common thread that we can work on that we're going to be successful at that. I really, really, truly believe that. Do you think that due process could be that common thread? Absolutely. I really do. Mm -hmm. You know, because we don't have to worry about, you know, whether some people prefer to call a student athlete or college athlete or Mm -hmm. whether some people prefer that student athletes receive a paycheck from the school versus those who believe that they should have the right to use their name and likeness and image to profit. We don't have those types of issues. Due process is something that's guaranteed by the 5th and 14th Amendments. It's something that every citizen should be able to enjoy. Mm-hmm. You know, so there isn't a lot of latitude with regard to, you know, what one group thinks about it versus another. Due process is due process. Now, there are some 
some different aspects of procedural due process when we talk about you know the right to an attorney um a right to clear notice of the allegations a right to um a hearing in front of your peers or a non-partial party you know we can all debate you know what procedures should be included in due process but mm-hmm. the fundamental concept of due process is something that we should all agree on mm-hmm. you know if i'm speaking to the folks at the drake group who are all faculty members would they want to be fired from their jobs as faculty members before they receive some type of hearing mm-hmm. of course not you know, if it were one of the parents that's involved in this reform effort, you know, would they want to be dismissed from a position on a community board or a board that they serve on without some type of due process? No, they wouldn't. Due process is something that we can fundamentally agree on. But I'll take it even a step further, Marsha and John. You know, I haven't had an opportunity to look at the results of the commission, um, not the commission, but the special committee. Um that was convened on Capitol Hill that Devin and mm-hmm. and Richard and, and others and maybe Judge Orr participated in. But that commission, that special committee did do a survey of power conferences and what they felt about due process. Mm-hmm. And while I haven't had an opportunity to go and analyze results yet, the majority, if not all of those schools, believe that student athletes should be afforded due process. Interesting. You know, so the question is, is why isn't it being provided? And I think that that goes back to the NCAA. I really, to be honest with you, I don't think, I I think that some schools, some administrators might have a problem with providing due process. But I think at the end of the day, NCAA member institutions truly want to provide due process because at the end of the day, they escape if the story's told then. It's possible in some situations that they might be able to escape any sanctions because mm-hmm. there is some type of plausible rationale behind it. So why wouldn't they want an opportunity to, you know, they don't want to have a situation where they're the fifth-ranked football team in the country and before we go play LSU, 17 or so players are suspended. They don't. They want to avoid that. And so, you know, circle back to your point. I, I, I think that, you know, one of my frustrations is that we – we have not come together around the common issue. And I think the due process is one of those issues because everything that I've witnessed in this reform fight points to the fact that the majority of the folks are on board with due process. The only people that really are not on board with it are the folks in Indianapolis because then we'll get to see how Southall says it. We'll get to see that the wizard – <laughs> you know, the guy behind the curtain right. isn't all that we think that he is. Right. Oh. And, right. That's an yeah. excellent point. That is an excellent point. Doc, Dr. Gilt, thank you so much, Emmett, for joining us here today. Uh, this has been an informative discussion, and thank you for all the good work you do on behalf of collegiate players. Marsha and I are thankful for you, for your work, and, and Emmett, we're thankful for your friendship. Yes, we are. Well, this has been a pleasure. It's, 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 it's always great to, to speak with both you and Marcia. Um, you know, not just because, you know, we share this, this, this bond around, you know, just basic athletes and human rights. Um, you know, but we have other bonds that we share in terms of our, our spirituality and our belief in, mm-hmm. in right and wrong. And, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I can honestly say that, you know, I, I don't think that I would be as deeply involved in this um, had it not been for 
for both you and John, um, for Marsha and John. So, I, you know, I, I owe a lot to you two. And, you know, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And, you know, any time that I can contribute, I, I'd certainly love to do that. So thank you. Thank you. It's, that is actually a mutual enrichment that we've had in our relationship. No I doubt. don't think John and I would be as deeply involved in this if we didn't have your friendship and partnership and guidance. And that's one of my takeaways from this conversation is just, number one, that due process is kind of a no-brainer <laughs> and that it could be the thread that connects um, the kind of disparate voices in the reform movement and that we've kind of gotten distracted by some things that are still important like name, image, and likeness and things like that. Those aren't things we shouldn't care about, but that due process is something that we could, that's doable and that we could come together and, and solve. And so that's, that's one of my takeaways. What about you, John? That's due process was one of my takeaways as well. And I think the thing that struck me is how close we are. Emmett said at one point, players just have to stand up and demand it. Mm -hmm. And while that's not always easy, because so often many of the players that are embroiled in this are, are ones that don't have advocates or don't have parents or don't have people that are going to be there with them and stand up. If we can educate players to their rights, mm -hmm. this is something that's close. This mm -hmm. is something that's so doable that it's almost absurd to think that we're in America and you don't have due process. Right. Well, um, that's what we get for going deep. <laughs> we kind of get to see the absurdity <laughs> right there in front of us. And uh, just to all of our listeners, we hope you'll join us next time. We're going to be here with Joe Nacera from the New York Times. He's the author of the new book, Indentured. And we'll get to look at a lot of these issues and more um, in his really informative um, and substantive book, um, co-written with Ben Strauss. Um, we are very much looking forward to that discussion next time on Going Deep. And thanks to WBAA, West Lafayette's public radio station. And a shout out and thanks to Erica Yawn, our sound engineer. Remember, you can follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and you can find us on Twitter at ShoopsGoingDeep and ShoopsGoingDeep.com. Many thanks to our growing audience of listeners. We are most grateful that you've decided to go deep with us. We're Team Shoop, and we hope you'll join us next time on Going Deep.